that we sing that, oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. And we're here because of the blood of Jesus and what he's done for us. Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. My name is Jose, and I'm a member here at Bethany Baptist Church. Thank you for allowing me the privilege to preach to you God's word today. Our sermon text is found in the book of Exodus chapter 12. It is on, I think, page 56. Am I right there? Is it 56? Page 56 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you want to use that. We're going to cover Exodus 12, 1 to 28, the Passover. But for right now, I'm just going to read to you Exodus 12, 24 to 28, because we'll cover the rest as the sermon goes on. So Exodus 12, 24 to 28. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, as, you, as he has promised, you are to observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he has passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshipped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did, they did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you use this time to draw us near to you? That that in whatever place that we find ourselves to be in today, that we would be reminded of your goodness through the sacrifice of the Lamb. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain days in your life that you remember. There are certain days in your life that are just memorable. There are probably some guys here today that are probably a little tired, a little worn out since they were out celebrating and having a pretty memorable weekend. <laughs> a weekend celebrating Jeff's bachelor party. Wow. Hey, Jeff. Tracy back there. Filled with some Super Smash Bros, some basketball, some tortilla slapping. You could ask Jeff what that is, but it's pretty self-explanatory. You, you slap others with tortillas. <laughs> but it was pretty memorable. And these memories of these events are worth remembering. And for the rest of us, for all of us here, there's certain days in our life that are worth remembering. And not only do you want to keep remembering these memories, these events, but you want others to know them as well. When I think about the events and accomplishments that have happened in my life, I want my kids, I want Josiah and Nathaniel to know about these moments worth remembering. 
I want them to know about July 18, 2015, when their parents got married on a hot July week, and how God decided that in his providence, let me just throw a rainstorm at you right then and there. In the middle of July that lasted the whole day. And some of you were there. Thank you for being there. And you celebrated with us as we tried to fit 300 people in a small little hall try, that where, where we were just supposed to get the food. So I, I know, small caveat, I know some of you guys here are wedding planning. So uh, just be prepared. Be prepared for anything. Even in July, it can rain. And the one comment that people tried to comfort us, comfort us, I heard this all, I heard this all throughout the wedding was, rain's, it's okay, rain's supposed to bring good luck. And the, the staunch Calvinist in me just smiled and nodded. And you see, you see I want Josiah and Nathaniel to remember this. It birthed our family, and I want my kids to remember this day, even though they weren't there. I want them to know about the thoughts that we had going into it, all the details surrounding it, and the purpose of our marriage. An equally important event that may rival this happened five years earlier. June 17, 2010. I could remember it like it was yesterday. It was a Thursday night. It was game seven of the NBA Finals. <laughs> the Lakers were down 3-2 to the Boston Celtics. Two nights earlier, they won game six. And could they win game seven at the formerly known Staples Center? But there was a problem that day. They were not playing well. The late, great Kobe Bryant shot six for 24. But inspired performances from Pau Gasol and Meta World Peace gave the Lakers their 16th championship. We can praise God for that. <laughs> I remember that day. I remember hugging my friends and family like I was on the team. Like I was the one who gave my blood, my sweat, my tears. I was so invested. I hugged them and I said, we did it. We did it. We worked so hard for it. All joking aside, these were important moments and memorable moments in my life. And I want to tell my kids the significance of these days. But the Lakers winning championship banner number 16 and even our wedding day isn't a day that will be known throughout generations. It won't be in many history books as a day to remember, a day where people will ask, where were you when this happened? There's moments in history that are like that. Church family, our lives changed two years ago in March. Where we're now living in a pandemic where many people have died and it's changed the way we live. When we think about these moments that change us, when we think about September 11th, 
in 9-11, most of us know where we were when this happened. Even when we think of our own calendar, there are days in our calendar to, remember, to help us remember what has happened in our own nation, in our country. We just celebrated our country's independence from England on 4th of July. Sorry, Jevin. <laughs> we celebrate Juneteenth now, where we remember the end of the evil that is slavery of black people here in the US. And similarly in our text today in Exodus 12, we have a story of an event to remember, where another people was to celebrate their freedom from slavery. And these people were the nation of Israel, God's chosen people who were slaves to the nation of Egypt. In Exodus 12, God, tell, God then tells Moses, the leader of the nation of Israel, and his brother Aaron, and he gives instructions. And these instructions are regarding the Passover, a meal and festival regarding an event signifying God's faithfulness and victory where God frees the nation of Israel. And God tells Moses these instructions. He tells, of, he tells him of these instructions even before the Passover plague even happens. He frees them in 12, chapter 12, verses 29 to 42, but we're covering verses 1 to 28. So today we're going to look at the Passover, a God-instituted celebration that he commanded his people to celebrate. And what does this Passover celebrate? The Passover celebrates God's saving of his people from judgment by using a meek, gentle lamb. So before we get to our text in Exodus, let me at least provide for you the setting for how we got here, okay? So if you're not familiar with the Bible, Exodus is the second book of the Bible right after the book of... Genesis, which talks about the beginning of God's world. Exodus, along with Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are the first five books of the Bible, also called the Torah, Pentateuch, good, good, just trying to gauge you're still awake, written by a man named Moses, who is prominent in our story today. So in, before Exodus is Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God creates the world and everything in it. Mankind was living with God in God's place with his blessing. But because of sin, man is banished from the garden and removed from God's place and is cursed. God, however, still loves mankind. and He has promised through Abraham that he will bless him and his offspring that his offspring would be as many as the stars in the sky and that God will bless them and that God has promised a land for them. So in this, in this, in this promise is a land, a people, and a blessing. But by the end of Genesis, in chapter 50, Abraham is long gone. And Genesis 50 ends with the deaths of his grandson Jacob and his great-grandson Joseph. And at the end of Genesis, God's people are not in the land that is promised, but because of famine, they settle in Goshen, in the land of Egypt. The nation of Israel settle there, and there's 70 of them who go. Genesis ends, and the book of Exodus begins, and in Egypt, there is a new pharaoh. A new pharaoh who is not as welcoming to the Israelites as the previous pharaoh. At the same time, the nation of Israel was following a biblical command of being fruitful and multiplying, and the nation grew. They grew in population. 
But this Pharaoh saw, saw the nation of Israel as a threat. Let me read to you Exodus 1 verse 10. It says this, the, the Pharaoh speaking, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when the war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave our country. This Pharaoh saw Israelites as a threat. But he didn't want them to leave. So he makes them slaves. God's blessing to Abraham in Genesis seems very distant. Although the people were growing in number, they were not in God's land, and now they were slaves. God is, however, still faithful to his people by using a man named Moses to deliver and redeem them. This same man, Moses, who was a baby, when he was a baby, could have died because the, because the previous Pharaoh wanted all the Hebrew babies that were boys killed. But Moses was spared because he was saved by who? Pharaoh's daughter. The daughter of the man trying to kill him. And in Exodus 5, Moses confronts the new Pharaoh. The new Pharaoh who was enslaving God's people. And he tells Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh's response, listen to this. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Now we're in Exodus, right? Exodus chapter 7, Exodus from Exodus 7 to 11, God uses 10 plagues. Do you guys know the plagues? You have turning water to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of livestock, boils, hails, locusts, not grasshoppers, darkness, and the 10th plague, which hasn't come yet at this time, the death of the firstborn. To try to get, he does this to try to get Pharaoh to let his people go, but his heart is hardened and he doesn't. So this is where we find ourselves, church, in Exodus 12. God is about to enact the 10th plague, and before he does that, he instructs Moses about the Passover celebration that they are to remember every year. See, growing up, when I thought about the story, I used to think that the main climax of the story was when Moses parts the Red Sea and the people go like leave Egypt and then and then eventually leave Egypt and then the the Egyptian army is then succumbed by the Red Sea. I think that was the climax of the story. And maybe maybe it's because I watched the Prince of Egypt many times and then when in that scene when it happens that's when the, the song with Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey go and you get all emotional. But looking back now the Passover was the most important event in the book of Exodus. It could be the most important event in the Old Testament. That people were saved from the judgment of God through the Lamb because these same people were also guilty and deserving of judgment. So if this story is new to you, Yes, God enacts these judgments, these plagues, in hope of freeing his people. God did part the Red Sea, and he provided rescue for his people. God enacts these improbable, miraculous acts to proclaim his glory. God did these miracles. And I want to provide some encouragement for you today that there can be miracles 
if you believe. <laughs> Though hope is frail, it's hard to kill. I'm just kidding. That's my last Prince of Egypt reference there. But all right, that, this is our setting. Let's now look at Exodus 12 about the Passover. Remember that at its core, the Passover is a meal. It's a commemorative feast. We celebrate, we celebrate stuff like that in our country, right? We, when 4th of July, what do we think of? What food do we think of? Barbecue. Hot dogs, what'd you say? Barbecue. barbecue. We barbecue. And when we think of Thanksgiving, you think of turkey and stuffing and other stuff that I don't really eat. But, and some of us grew up in families that they had certain traditions during these holidays and certain specifications on how the meal is to be prepared. And that is what our text of Passover is kind of doing. Except with a lot more specifications and if, except with the fact that if you don't do it, you'll, you'll be cut off from the land. So this is our text, Exodus 12. Um, let me just paint for you a picture. Since it is a narrative, it'll be a little different than the other passages that we've been covering on Sundays like Colossians and Hebrews. We'll spend a good chunk of our time trying to understand the story. At the end of it, we'll try to take some brief um, application points for us, okay? But as we go into the story, I want you to understand the main point of the passage. And the main point of our text today, which is remember God's salvation through the Passover lamb. Remember God's salvation through the Passover lamb. So let's read Exodus 12. I'll be stopping us in, in between, okay? Exodus 12. Says this, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. The Lord Yahweh, who reveals himself to Moses in chapter 3, when he says, I am who I am, Yahweh, who is the covenant keeping faithful God of Israel, is now beginning his instructions to Moses regarding the Passover meal and festival. We first notice that in verse 2 that God has given specific commands of when they should eat this meal. I don't know what calendar the Israelites had at the time if they had a set calendar, but we see that God is telling them that this event now marks the beginning of months for them. God has now decided that his history determines their calendar and that this event of the Exodus is, is the beginning of new life for them. Let's go down to verse 3. Let's read verse 3 and 4. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families. One animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. We see here that the Passover was not an individual affair. Who is Moses and Aaron supposed to tell about the Passover? The whole community, the whole community of Israel. And they are now to select an animal, one per family. And if the family is too small for a whole animal to eat, they can invite their neighbors and portion out their meals. You see, if a household didn't have that many people and are not able to consume a whole lamb, 
in a sitting, they could, they could invite a neighboring family to eat with them. But this also could have the opposite issue of having more people eating of the lamb. It may not be enough food for everyone. But they were, portioned, they were to portion it out evenly, and even if they had a small portion of food to eat, this was an acceptable outcome to the Lord compared to overeating and wasting of the food. All right, drop down to verses 5 to 7. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintels of the houses where they eat them. So here, this talks about the sacrifice. We have the instructions for the animal to be sacrificed. A young male, sheep, or goat. An unblemished animal. A spotless lamb. You see, the lamb picked needed to meet these qualifications for it to be sacrificed. So church family, what would happen if the animal wasn't a perfect sacrifice? If they didn't offer their best animal? Deuteronomy 17.1 says this, Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God or an ox or sheep with a defect or any serious flaw, for that is detestable to the Lord your God. It is detestable to the Lord your God. So they needed to offer their best. They are to select the animal on the 10th day and they sacrifice it on the 14th day. Why is this? You see, to select an animal of the flock four days in advance would give opportunity to observe its defects, if it has any. Verse 7 tells us what they're supposed to do with the blood. They're supposed to place the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the house where they eat them. You see, the obedience of placing the blood on the doorpost shows that a person believed God would keep his word and pass over him. Sparing him from judgment, Israel would escape this judgment through the sacrifice of this spotless lamb. And salvation was accomplished through this substitute. But how could an animal help provide salvation for those who ate it and put its blood on the doorpost? Does this mean, did this passage mean that every animal was spotless and unblemished to the point that each one was a perfect sacrifice? You see, each animal couldn't in it, in it, in it of itself provide salvation. What mattered was the people's action of obedience in faith that they were putting forth their best lamb. And that they were acting out in faith that God would save them based off what he did. You see, the blood serves as a sign both to Israel and to, and to God that no harm will befall the family during the night of the destruction of the firstborn. Okay, let's keep following along verses 8 to 9. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it, roast it over the fire, along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roast it over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. So normally, in a Jewish Passover meal, there are three main food elements. 
There is the lamb, the unleavened bread, which is the matzah, and the bitter herbs. Herbs. The bitter herbs. So what are these bitter herbs and why are they in this meal? There are normally five elements in the making of these bitter herbs. It's romaine, romaine, romaine lettuce, thistle, chicory, endives, and erango. And some people end up using horseradish. But the purpose of eating bitter herbs is that they would realize that these herbs were bitter. The bitter herbs are to remind them of their bondage. It was there to remind them of the bitterness that they experienced at the hands of Egypt so that they would see that God's deliverance of them was great. You see, in Jewish tradition, they would, when, during a Passover, they would eat the bitter herbs and eat enough of it that it would bring tears to their eyes. And it would remind them of God's saving of them and the struggle that they had in Egypt. So application for us, church family, when we think of our sin... We should see it in the same way. We should think of the bitter time that we had in bondage to sin. The bitter time that we had apart from Christ. And we should think of this when we have moments of temptation to run back to sin. That sin only leads to more bitterness. And God has saved us from this bitterness. Puritan preacher Thomas Watson says this, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And Christ is sweet. Right, church family? So they were to roast the lamb and eat all of its parts. The lamb was not to be boiled, but roasted. So now we know how it was cooked. There was no oven baking, no pan searing, no reverse sears, no tartaring here. There was no broiling. There was no smoker available. There was no deep frying, no air frying, no microwaving of this lamb. It was to be roasted. Why? You see, all aspects of the cooking and eating were designed so that the Israelites could eat it quickly, ready for departure. So roasting the lamb was the quickest method that they had in making sure that the lamb was fully cooked and ready to eat quickly. Let's go on with our text, verses 10 to 11. It says this, You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning you must burn. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. So what's the dress code for this event? This is not a formal affair, no black tux kind of event. It's also not a, a lounge around and just wear your pajamas kind of event either. They need to be ready for travel. They need to have their staff in hand. This also sets the mood for how they are to eat as well. They are to eat of this in what? A hurry. Imagine someone prepares a meal and it's like, hey, you got to eat this fast. It was not like that. <laughs> you see, there is no relaxing and savoring the food in the first Passover. The ESV translation says that they had to eat it in haste, meaning with eagerness. So mind you, this is the instruction for the Passover festival going forward, right? 
but the first Passover definitely had more up for grabs than the Passovers after Exodus. They probably have more time now to savor their food now in Jewish tradition of the Passover. Actually, it's like the Jewish in regular, if you, if you know about a, a Passover meal, it normally takes, with all the readings and, and, and prayers, it usually takes four hours to, to eat the meal. And if you want to understand more about the Jewish tradition of Passover or Seder, um, we, I don't know if you guys remember Dr. Varner. He came here, I think, maybe two years ago to preach. He has, he has a great video online explaining what goes on in a Passover meal. I think I'll try to send that in the church email to you guys. So you could kind of get a better understanding of what's actually happening in this meal. But imagine if you were there. If you were there for the first Passover, you're probably nervous and anxious, living with the sense of urgency of having to leave at any minute's notice, and you need to have the faith to trust that this blood of the Lamb will save you from the destruction of the firstborn. And if you're there as an Israelite, even though you've been slave, you're, you're a slave, Egypt was all you knew. The thought of leaving everything they knew so that they can act in faith to leave and trust God to go to a land where you don't know, it can be nerve-wracking. There's no, there's no mode of transportation like, an, like a car or even take a plane. You're going by foot to another land for days on and you're leaving the place that you knew. That's all you knew. So you could understand if there might have been some fear and anxiety, anxiety of leaving for the Israelites. Maybe some of them didn't want to leave Egypt. Thankfully, in God's providence, when the Exodus does occur, the Egyptians pressured the Israelites to leave because the Egyptians believed that if the Israelites didn't leave, that they were going to die. So this is the setting of the first Passover. Let's read now about the judgment to the Egyptians and the judgment the Israelites were hoping to be spared from in verse 12. So we'll read verses 12 to 13. It says this, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute the judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this is the 10th and final plague of judgment on the people of Egypt. You see, God on this night will strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. In the houses who did not have the blood of the lamb posted on it. In verses later on in Exodus 12 and verses 29 to 31, Yahweh carries out on this action. It says that Yahweh at midnight struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. There was a loud wailing in the land of Egypt because there wasn't a house with someone dead. And this eventually led to Pharaoh relenting and letting the Israelites go. You see, church, one of the main themes in the book of Exodus was the display of God's glory to the earth. 
In Exodus 3, God reveals himself to be Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, to Moses. And by Exodus 12, we see God's desire for his glory by freeing his people and pouring judgment out on the Egyptians. And these Egyptians were at the time the most powerful nation in the world. And Yahweh was declaring by the plagues that the most powerful nation in the world was no match for Yahweh. You see, the Lord didn't have to set 10 plagues on the nation of Egypt. He could have punished Pharaoh and Egypt very swiftly and very quickly. But he wanted to set the stage for, for the rest of the world so that the rest of the world would see his greatness and his power and his glory. Verse 12, we just read, says that these judgments weren't just to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but to their gods also. You see, the plagues demonstrated Yahweh's superiority to all these inferior gods. You see, the Egyptians were pantheists, which believed that nature is God. Pan meaning all, theism meaning, meaning a belief in God, meaning God is everything and everything is God. They were also polytheists, meaning they worshipped many gods. In fact, they worshipped hundreds of gods. God's purpose in these ten plagues was to show Israel, show Egypt, and show the rest of the world that he is the only true God. That his ten plagues showed that he was superior to these other gods that the people believed in. You believe in the god of weather? Here's a plague of hail. You believe in a God of good health? Let me set a plague of boils. Each plague was, in a sense, a rebuttal to all of these gods that they believed in. Whatever, the, whatever these little gods that these people believed in were overpowered by Yahweh, and, it was, and the plagues were met with utter silence from these gods. It was Yahweh's mic drop to answer these false gods. You might be thinking, is Moses saying that these gods actually exist? No. We believe that there is only one God, but these Egyptian gods are actually just make-believe, whatever they wanted to put their faith in at that time. They put their hope and trust in things that they wanted to believe in that they thought would serve them. And Yahweh was proclaiming his glory to the world by these plagues and demonstrating to everyone that a, belief, that a belief system like the Egyptians had was foolish. And to trust in various gods who don't provide anything would be fatal and it would lead to destruction. These gods that they, the Egyptians believed in weren't able to save, they weren't able to grant life, they weren't able to grant salvation, all they would grant, all it would lead to was destruction. And ultimately, God was using these plagues to draw people to himself. He was exposing these other false gods as fraudulent and displaying to the people that not only is he the only true God, but he is the only God who loves his people, and he shows that by saving them and rescues them. We read that Pharaoh's initial reaction in chapter 5 was, Who is this Lord? 
Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let the Israelites go? By Exodus 12, Pharaoh and the Egyptians knew the answer to that question. Question for us, what are the gods that people believe in now? Whether it be a belief system like universalism that believes that everyone is going to heaven, or atheism, that there is no God. Or agnosticism that says that there, there is a belief in God, but he can't, God cannot be known. Or a belief that all religions are somewhat true and speaking of the same God, that it will all just lead and mean the same thing. Or a belief that what's true for you is true for you, but not for me. That, and even though they contradict, it's still all true. Church family, do we believe that God has demonstrated his authority and superiority over these false gods, over these false systems of beliefs? If so, are we able now to enter into the worlds of these people and gospelize them towards the only true God? Or are we to stay silent? When people say that the Bible is outdated, or when people say that the Bible is not relevant to the culture that we believe in now, do we know how to respond? BBC, remember the Exodus. That Yahweh entered into a land like Egypt, a land that had so much influence to the rest of the world, and he demonstrates his glory and his greatness in the midst of thousands of false gods. And he made those other belief systems foolish. And we have the charge to do the same thing with the gospel message today. When people ask like Pharaoh, who is the Lord? Can we answer people with confidence that the Lord? There is no God but Yahweh. The covenant-keeping God of the universe who loves his people and rescues them from their sins to know him and enjoy him forever. Let's move along. Verse 14. This day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. Here we see... God instituting the Passover as a festival as a festival to celebrate continually for generations to come. You see, in Jewish tradition, there are seven festivals. Usually in the, in the spring, around April, you'll have the Passover. And the seven days right after that is the festival of unleavened bread. And the Sunday following the Passover is the festival of first fruits. And 50 days after the Passover is the festival of weeks which we would um, probably understand, uh, we know more familiar with as uh, Pentecost. And then in the fall, you have the Festival of Trumpets, which, which is Rosh Hashanah. And then you have Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which is 10 days after that. And then seven days after that is the Festival of Tabernacles. So those are the seven festivals that in Jewish tradition that they would, that they would follow and keep. So in our text, why should the people commemorate and celebrate this day as a permanent statute? Why do they need to be reminded of this? 
Because people tend to forget. Because people tend to forget. You see, the main point of our passage is remember God's salvation through the Passover lamb. You see, there's a reason why we're called by God to remember and a reason why he calls Israel to remember the Passover. Because we can forget. Because what is not carefully remembered by people can be easily forgotten. Especially if the people who are there at the Passover are no longer around and they pass away. You see, God wanted his people to remember this event of the Exodus, the Passover, as his supreme demonstration in the Old Testament of his rescue and deliverance. He wanted them to look back to this event. He wanted them to look back to this event in moments of doubt, in moments of questioning, in moments where they felt like, does God still love me? Is God still faithful? And God's response would be, remember. Remember the Passover. Let's keep moving forward. Verses 15 to 20 speak of the festival of the unleavened bread. I'll read his five verses here. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day to the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. You are to hold a sacred assembly on the first day and another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No work may be done on these days except for preparing what people need to eat. You may do only that. You are to observe the festival of unleavened bread because on this very day I brought your military divisions out of the land of Egypt. You must observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You are to eat unleavened bread in the first month from the evening of the 14th day of the month until the evening of the 21st day. Yeast must not be found in your houses for seven days. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether a resident alien or native of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. Do not eat anything leavened. Eat unleavened bread in all your homes. So why unleavened bread? Look, people everywhere eat leavened bread. It just tastes better. It's more filling and it's... It was a normal food for people to eat. So why were the people only to eat of unleavened bread? Well, for one, it took longer to make leavened bread. And what, and what do we know about their eating situation? They needed to eat in what? They needed to eat in a hurry. They needed to eat in haste and be ready to leave at any time. And may have not had time for it to rise. But I think there's also an issue with the process of fermentation that leaven products go through. Because yeast, which is found in leaven products, although it's tasty, the process of it can be damaged or contaminated. It wasn't as pure. The unleavened products didn't have yeast. And I know some of you here are bakers, and I have partaken of your deliciousness in your baking with these the cookies and whatever things Atatricia makes and I just encourage you to keep giving them keep making them <laughs> practical application keep baking good, good things but yeast 
has been seen as a symbol for sin. Let me just read for you Luke 12, verse 1. says, Be on your guard against the leaven or yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when we talk about um, church discipline of the sexual immoral person in the church, it says, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 to 8, says this, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So that is why they ate of unleavened bread. And it says in our text here that if anyone eats of something leavened in that seven days, they would be cut off from the community of Israel. Let's keep moving along from our text. We're almost done with our, our, our uh, understanding of the text so far. So let's read verses 21 to 23. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. So these are the specific instructions from Moses to the elders of Israel that are applicable to the first Passover. And we see in verse 23 that there is a mention of the person or, or the, the, the one who is going to be the one to strike. He's called the destroyer. So who is this destroyer? It's the angel of the Lord. We'll see this in other passages in the Old Testament that bring about judgment. If you read 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, David takes a census that was sinful to the Lord. The Lord offered David three choices. It said, you can have three years of famine to the land, you can flee from your foes for three months, or you could, or you could have a plague for three days. He chose a plague for three days. And this is what 2 Samuel 24, 15 says. So this says, the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. Then the angel extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. But the Lord relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was, who was destroying the people, enough. Withdraw your hand now. We see another similar situation happen in Isaiah 37. It says the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. Friends, this is why the Passover is so important. God was enacting a judgment to the people. We just read how destructive this judgment was at the hands of this, this destroyer. But God, because of the lamb, because of the obedience of putting, of slaughtering the lamb and putting its blood on the doorpost, passes over Israel. 
Lastly, our text, verses 24 to 28, says this, Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshipped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. The Israelites were to see the Passover as a lasting ordinance and statute to keep. And they were to pass the statute on to their children. And in verse 26, we see that each generation of parents were responsible to teach their children of the meaning of the Passover. When your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? You see, this is a direct command from God to the, to, to the parents, to the Israelite parents, to disciple their children in the ways of the Lord. They couldn't be passive and wait on their children to come, grow up, and be like, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy, what does the Passover mean? They needed to be telling them this from the get-go. They needed to be discipling them, raising their children to know what this event meant. They couldn't blame their children later on for not having an interest in knowing about it. They were responsible to pass the meaning of this ceremony on to their children. Each parent was responsible to convey the meaning of the Passover, which speaks of God saving and passing over sinful people through the sacrificial lamb. To my BBC parents here, when your children have a similar question, when your children ask you, what does Jesus mean to you? Or what is the gospel? What is our response? Can we clarify it clearly for them? Or have we already been doing that? Your children are here in this gathering. And Lord willing, we'll have children's classes in the future. But parents, do you see it as your God-given responsibility and privilege to disciple your children in the ways of the Lord? And to the parents here, you may be fearful if your kids ask you these questions. Maybe you feel inadequate. For those of us parents here or who are struggling with leading our children, I encourage you to not despair. There's no need to compare yourselves to other parents in the church, but seek the help of these brothers and sisters. That's why we're here. You can ask them questions of, hey, what ways are you discipling your children? Ask them to walk alongside you as you guys, as you both parent your, your kids. And you don't need to have your liturgy down. You don't need to have your, it doesn't have to be two hours daily of a set family worship time where you're singing four prep songs, you're having a call to worship, and you're having a sermon that's just as long as PJ's. But it could just be, you could just simply just speak to them about the goodness of God. Speak to them of what God is teaching you. 
and provide an environment that encourages questions, encourages healthy dialogue about God. To the children here, I encourage you to ask questions about the faith to your parents. Many of you are here from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. when there's an evening service. That's a long time. And there are many things happening around you during a Lord's Day. Ask your parents questions. And why are these things happening? Why do we need to be here for two services? That's a good question. You can ask them that. Why... Why is someone over here on certain times getting, getting immersed in water? Why are you guys taking a Lord's Supper every week? Why, why, why are these things happening? Children, ask these questions. And parents, encourage these questions. Talk to your parents about these questions you have about God. They're here to walk with you and disciple you. So a practical application for us here. Later on tonight... Similar to a Passover meal, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. And likely your children will not be taking it. Do they know why they aren't? Explain it to them. Explain to them the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Because your children may ask the question, what does this ceremony mean to you? And we are called to provide an answer. You see, church family, the purpose of these specific instructions in our text today, this, the Passover text, was to celebrate the Passover. It was the, the, the purpose of it so that God's people would remember. And ultimately, we see the purpose of this remembering in verse 27 when it says that the people knelt low and worshipped. The purpose for anything that the Lord does is that so that his people would worship so friends the main point of this text is remember God's salvation through the Passover lamb we need to remember what God has done because we are quick to forget think about the nation of Israel immediately after our passage they get saved through the exodus Moses parts the Red Sea provides a way for the Israelites to leave The nation of Israel spent 430 years in Egypt, and now they're free. But it only took them four chapters in chapter 16 for them to grumble and complain and say this, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. They had already forgotten. They had already forgotten for what they were saved from. That is why, BBC, when we, when we read Exodus 12 and remember God's salvation through the Passover lamb, there are aspects of this remembrance that we should see. So here's the three applications for us. It's very simple. Remember the Lord's salvation through the Passover lamb and what that means for your past, what that means for your present, and what that means for your future. So let's look at it real quickly on what it means for your past. You see, church, we are called to look back 
and remember God's work as well. Not, not only in the Passover, but in the New Testament greater equivalent of the cross of Christ. You see, there were 10 plagues that poured judgment on the nation of Egypt. All of them except the last one, the Israelites were freed from. It didn't affect them. But the Israelites on the 10th plague, they still need, they needed to do something to prevent them from also receiving this same judgment. They needed to pour the blood on the doorpost in order to be passed over and saved from God's judgment. Why was that? Why was that? Because they also were sinful people needing to be saved from God's wrath. They were, they were not any better than the Egyptians. We, like Israel, were enslaved, not to Egypt, but a more evil master, our sin. We were slaves to our sin, but we have been rescued and saved by the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished lamb, Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian here today, thank you for coming. We believe that we are all enslaved to sin. And because of sin in our lives, we would be powerless to fight against our own sinful nature and desires. But thanks be to God who has provided for us a rescue in God the Father's Son, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And in him, talking about Jesus, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, we believe that Jesus Christ was innocently crucified on the cross, and he dies for us on this cross. And when he dies, he takes the wrath that we deserve for our sin. A blood sacrifice was needed for the, Egyptian, for the Israelites to be passed over. And the only blood worthy to pass over our sins and pay for our sins was the blood of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. Jesus dies on the cross and is buried and he triumphantly rises from the grave on the third day and is now seated on the right hand of the Father. And if you're not a Christian here today, he is now calling you to receive his love and mercy by repenting and turning away from your sin. Your sin, which seeks to put you back in bondage, to enslave you. And God is calling you now to trust in Jesus Christ instead. You see, we're all slaves to something. Why not entrust your life to Jesus who dies for you and provides rescue if you place your faith in him? BBC, where in our lives are we failing to remember? Where are we failing to remember the faithfulness of God? You see, for me and our family, the biggest burden that we've had is our desire to adopt our boys. And it's a situation that is not in our control. It's a situation that when we think about the outcome that could happen, it scares us. 
it's been difficult to live in a place for us where there hasn't been any type of resolution or movement in sight. And there's been failure on my part to remember and trust in God's faithfulness there. And so for some of you guys, I know it may be difficult to remember God's faithfulness in trials. As you struggle to make ends meet, as you struggle with your desire to get married, as some families here struggle with their desire and waiting for their families to grow. And some of us here are struggling with grief and loss. I just want to encourage you to remember Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who has shown his faithfulness to you all throughout the scriptures. He revealed himself to Moses. He saves Israel out of Egypt. And he, saved, and he sent Jesus to save you. He has proven himself to be worthy of your worthy to be trusted. So remember Yahweh and his faithfulness to you in the trials of life and what he's done for you in your past and the fact that he's redeemed your broken days. That's the first thing. Second thing, remember the Lord's salvation through the Passover lamb and what that means for the present. You see, church, BBC, the Passover has meaning for us today we're able to actually partake of it weekly. We call it the Lord's Supper. We're, so let me just read to you Luke 22. Yeah, actually, let's turn there. Luke 22, verses 1 to 20. Just I want to have you see the correlation here. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus is partaking in a Passover meal. So Luke 22 says this. Let's, let's read it. Uh, just follow along with me. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So we accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table. And the apostles with him, then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, 
He also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me, for the Son of Man will go away, and that has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Let's stop there. See, church, here in our passage, this passage in Luke, Jesus is instituting that a new and greater Passover meal has arrived. This is the new greater Passover meal, the Lord's Supper. And in Luke 9, chapters earlier, is the transfiguration. In the transfiguration, Jesus meets two, with two men, with Elijah and who else? With Moses. Right? The one we're talking about here in Exodus. And it, and it says this in Luke 9.31. It says this. They appeared in glory and were speaking to Jesus of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And that word departure there is the same word for Exodus. They were speaking of his Exodus, of his rescuing of his people that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And even further, John 19, 36, regarding Jesus' death, says this, For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled, that not one of his bones will be broken. And where is the scripture fulfilled? Exodus 12. If you read Exodus 12, verse 46. I'll read that to you quickly. Exodus 12, 46. It says, It is to be eaten in one house, you may not take any of the meat outside the house, and you may not break any of its bones. And the only reason why that, that verse is shared here in John 19 is that you would see that a, a greater Passover meal has arrived, that a greater lamb has come. And in this Passover meal, Jesus shares this meal with his disciples in Luke 22. And he eats with them the most important Passover meal of all time. Imagine being a disciple, eating a Passover meal with the Passover lamb. Although his disciples didn't understand it at the time, Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper as the greater Passover. You see, the former Passover in Egypt was a type and shadow of what was to come. And we celebrate this greater Passover meal every week. And it's the Lord's Supper. Jesus is the greater Passover lamb and is better than the lamb that was sacrificed on doorposts because when you put your faith in this Passover lamb, in the greater Passover lamb, the blood saves you not only on that night, it saves you from your sin and provides for you eternal salvation. Jesus says in Luke 22, that when his body is given to you, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember the Passover lamb. Friends, Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. It's no longer the Exodus that we remember, but we think of the, the cross of Christ. And when I think about the Lord's Supper, I'm kind of bummed that we're not doing it this morning. We're, do it. we're not doing it this morning. We're doing it tonight. I know it's here. It's, it's just teasing us. <laughs> I'm encouraged, one thing that encourages me to think about is this meal, it's a family meal. 
And we have the privilege to take the Lord's Supper with all of you, members of BBC here. And we take the Lord's Supper knowing each other's stories. I think of the Lord's Supper and, 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 and see you guys partaking it. I know, your, I know most of you guys' stories. And how God has worked in you and is still working in you. So BBC, tonight, come to evening gathering. Take the Lord's Supper with us. When you take the Lord's Supper tonight, look at the people around you. Look at the people that are partaking of this meal with you. Think about the things that they have gone through in this life. Think about the things that they've gone through this week or this month. The trials that they've had to overcome. The struggles that were so difficult, but somehow God helped them push through. Think of the people here that are taking the Lord's Supper that are currently in pain. Those that are grieving and hurting, but still managing to hold on to the faith because they remember the salvation that they have in the sacrificial lamb, sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. Look at these people and let that help you remember and recall the faithfulness of God in their lives, but also your life. And thank God for his keeping and saving of us. That in this meal that we celebrate together, we remember the body given to us and the blood spilt by Jesus, the Passover lamb. All right, last point before we close. We saw how we need to remember, remember the Lord and, and remember God's salvation through the Passover lamb in our past, what that means for us in our present in taking the Lord's Supper, but also what that means for our future. Jesus said in Luke 22 that he will not eat of this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When he drinks it anew, when he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. So when we think about the Passover lamb, when we look about our future, there will be a day where you will be taking of the, of, of the Passover meal with him, with Jesus. We read Revelation 19 earlier in our scripture reading. Let me just read Revelation 19 verses 6 to 9. says this, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of a loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. BBC, we have a feast to look forward to. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. When we take of the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, we have a foretaste of what's coming in this coming feast. So BBC, look forward to this meal. Live your life in a way that you are longing for this meal. This meal where we will be with the Lord in a place with no more suffering, no more pain, and no more sin, and we will feast in the house of Zion with the Lamb. 
Jesus Christ, the great Passover lamb who shed his blood and passed over our sins so that we wouldn't be punished but rescued. So remember what God has done for you in rescuing you and providing salvation through this lamb. Not just in your past, not just as we think about it when we take the Lord's Supper in our present, but also in the future that you, where we are awaiting that one day where we will eat with Jesus and we will be partaking of the marriage feast of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the spotless Lamb, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that passes over our sins. Help us remember what he has done for us. Help us to eagerly await the day that we will be feasting with him in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's take the next two to three minutes now to share a takeaway with anyone around you. If you're, if you're new here and, and it's, it's, we, do, we, we share takeaways around here, so if you're a visitor here, if you're not comfortable with that, just kind of listen around. Someone might come to you and uh, share a takeaway, but uh, feel free to just share whatever you'd want to share, okay? Let's do that now.